I'm Robin Williams, and I've been in, in Australia for long enough to realise we have a problem with Crocodile Dundee. And not in science, but in politics. We'd have not Crocodile Dundee, but Lizard Dundee, or sometimes even, like that, Skink Dundee. We have people who can't necessarily lead for some reason. I don't know why. And I'm quite eucumenical, I think, an awful lot of people in top jobs find it very difficult to lead and make decisions. And uh, when you have that sort of problem, the best thing to do is ask a geologist. Because Herbert Huppert from Cambridge, who's an Australian, is a geologist who does maths. And it's so much nicer, isn't it, Herbert, instead of climbing volcanoes and looking down into Caldera and possibly having your eyebrows shot off by all that liquid lava, which is a tautology, of course. Then you uh, instead calculate, do QEDs. And in that process, mathematicians very much come to a QED situation, are able to make decisions as to where to go next. Now, seriously, it's a problem of how you organize your time. In broadcasting, where I am, you have to do it perforce, because if you do not make a decision when you're live on air, you look like a complete idiot. And so you have to think through what happens if and what you will do to practice getting things right and see ways of making effective decisions. So that's more or less the background, and uh, Herbert Huppert has been coming here to the University of New South Wales and Sydney for a while, and the rest of the time is in Cambridge. And while he's in Sydney, let him talk to you, Herbert Huppert. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, let me first uh, start by thanking Meredith for inviting me to give this talk and organizing it all, and to Robin for his introduction and also for his support for 20, 30 years. He's been really a wonderful uh, mentor and uh, friend. I'm very proud and pleased to have him as a friend. And I'd like to thank you all for coming. Nothing would be more embarrassing than being invited to give a talk and have nobody turn up at all and just talk uh, to nobody. Some of my Cambridge colleagues do that in lectures at times. That doesn't seem to bother them, but it would bother me. So I'm very grateful that you uh, come. Well, I'd like to say something about uh, making decisions and uh, getting it right. We all have decisions uh, to uh, make. Some are rather small, like uh, deciding how many bottles of champagne we'll order for that party we're going to run for the first time to celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary, let's uh, say next Saturday. Some uh, decisions are more important in a sense, like buying BHP shares, should one do that? The man at the tennis court has said that they're going to go up. How many BHP shares should one buy? They might go up, but then again, they might uh, go down. Since we're in a university, I'll give an example of how many super professors do you decide to bring into uh, the university? The way that universities are run these days, you bring in super professors to make money. Does that mean you bring in super professors in the humanities? Maybe the world's best classicist, but will she bring in much money? Is it worthwhile? Uh, 
hiring her. Well, that's a decision that you uh, might have to make. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull has to make uh, decisions, uh, and he does it one way or another. It's a question of uh, the military. Uh, how many men do you really need on the ground to bring peace to Syria? You don't want too few, which will be a disaster. You don't want too many, because that will be uh, very expensive. So there are lots of decisions like this that you have to make, and there are a variety of ways of making them. One is to toss a coin. Comes up heads, I'll buy 1,000 shares. It comes up tails, I'll buy 10,000. Some people make decisions like that. The other is to ask a good friend. The other is to get a committee together and see what the committee uh, says. How does the Vice-Chancellor make a decision here? Well, there are a number of committees, the Senate and uh, uh, representatives of uh, the uh, faculties. Then how do you work that uh, committee? There are questions like, should we have a plebiscite uh, here? And I would like to tell you of what I think is one of the better ways of making decisions, really big decisions, which I'm going to concentrate on, and decisions about what's going to happen in the future. Many of my colleagues are damn good at predicting what happened in the past. It's what happens in the future that you really uh, want to uh, know. Another uh, example, because enough of the Harbour Bridge, uh, is how many policemen should you use uh, to control a uh, crowd? You don't want to use too many because you might, in fact, inflame uh, annoyance. You don't want to use too few because if something happens, then you won't have uh, enough police. I once uh, came down to uh, London and I wasn't feeling very well and I thought I needed uh, a chemist. And just as I got out of the tube, there was a policeman standing there, so I said to uh, him, do you know where the nearest chemist is? And he said in a Mancunian accent that I can't uh, copy, I'm afraid, maybe Robin can do it, I don't know. I've just come down from Manchester and I don't know anything about London. I've never been to London before. And I said, well, how come you're here? He said, well, there was a phone call suggesting that there'd be a terrorist attack in London. And so as many Mancunian policemen as possible were brought down to London to give protection. And I thought about this for a millisecond, maybe not even as long as that, and said, gee, this would be a wonderful time to bomb Manchester when all the police are down here. And he went slightly white. Uh, then he said some things that I can't repeat to you either the language or the accent, I'm afraid. Uh, but uh, that really is a, a big problem. Another problem that you might like to uh, think about is uh, that of uh, global change. You can't argue with the data, or I don't believe you can argue with the data of what's happened up to uh, 2016. There's no doubt that over the long time scale, the Earth is warming. Now, I believe it's also due to uh, humans, but there are some who don't believe that, but whatever, it is warming. And now the question is, what will uh, happen in the future? How do you decide that? Is it going to be, as the IPCC said, the low estimate, so it's only going to increase by some one degree, or is it the high estimate, which would mean that there'd be a five degree increase? As I'll uh, explain to you in more detail later, it makes a huge difference to the uh, level of uh, the uh, water. 
If it's five degrees, then places like Bangladesh will be totally flooded. Uh, and that will be a problem, not only for the people of Bangladesh, but they're going to have to go somewhere. I said this once in the seminar about two, three years ago in Melbourne, and somebody in the back said, don't worry, Tony Abbott won't let them come here, it'll be all right. <laughs> well, but they have to go uh, somewhere, and so it is interesting to know what the problem will uh, be. Australia has set up a climate commission to look into this, and you see all the uh, difficulties of droughts and hotter days and more rain over Melbourne than even I remember it as a young uh, boy. Who's going to decide what we uh, do and how we handle this situation? These two guys, the people you should approach, do they know what's uh, going on? This is a cartoon I got from, uh, I think, the, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald. Is anybody safe? Well, we have to know what's going to uh, happen. Another problem is Tehran, where there was an earthquake that totally destroyed Tehran in the fourth century. We probably didn't hear about it for another century or something like that. Then in 855 AD, in 958 AD, in 1177, and in 1830. Each one of those earthquakes killed 90% of the population. When is the next earthquake going to be? It's an important question to have some idea of. One thing I can guarantee you is 90% of the population will be killed again. That I, everybody agrees with that. The population at the moment is something like 10 million, so we're talking about 9 million deaths. So that's really quite important. The reason that there are so many deaths is while, for example, in uh, um, Japan and in uh, America, it is known how to build houses that withstand earthquakes, in Tehran, the people who build the houses take no notice of the regulations, whatever those regulations might be, and they're not much. They take no notice of them, and two or three weeks after the building is finished, you'd never find them again. They've taken the money and gone off, and so you couldn't find them. That's not true uh, in uh, um, America, and that's why it's uh, much better. The other thing is, when this earthquake occurs, we'll know within seconds, because there's such good global communication, what will happen, what will be a consequence of this earthquake, aside from nine million people being killed, we don't quite uh, know. Another question uh, in the geologists, if you like, but not me, said uh, in uh, 2012 there was a 20% chance of Santorini, this big volcanic uh, cauldron, erupting again. What were you meant to do with the knowledge that there was a 20% chance of it uh, erupting? Close 20% of the shops? Have 20% of the people not come? It was a very big uh, problem because if for example, the uh, uh, British science advisor said, don't go to Santorini because there's a chance of an earthquake, and nothing happened. He could have ruined the uh, economy of uh, Greece in particular, but Sant well, you couldn't ruin the economy of Greece, uh, but you could ruin the economy of Santorini. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if there was an uh, eruption, there would be many people who'd be killed, and they'd say, well, why didn't the Foreign Office give us any uh, warning? Another problem, where do you put a nuclear reactor building? 
I put this slide in because I went down to Lucas Heights on Friday. It was uh, fascinating. There was an enormous amount of security. They wouldn't even let the Uber who took me down there into uh, the building, uh, into the grounds. But what happens if there's some other problem, a natural problem? Well, you, you have to think about that. Um, Vesuvius is known to erupt. It would kill 300,000 people if there was an eruption uh, today. What isn't as well known is just nearby, only about 10 miles away, there's a much, much bigger volcano, which when it erupts, when will that happen? Uh, it will cause enormous damage. The Italians, of course, know this, and they've got committees together, and one thing is definite, absolutely definite. All the northern Italians saying, those southern Italians are not coming up here. We're not going to uh, take care of them in any way. But what would you uh, do? There's a question of uh, Fukushima. What's going to happen there? I found it fascinating. Two weeks after the Fukushima disaster, I gave a big public lecture in London, and I said, this will have enormous consequences. And again, somebody from the back screamed out, no, it won't have any consequences at all. Rubbish. It had enormous consequences. So how do you find out the answer to these important problems? Well, the way to do it is to ask an expert. So I'm going to tell you uh, a little bit about uh, what I've uh, done in this work and what I think, and I much look forward to uh, the question and answer period afterwards. In some sense, the subject started in 1904 when there used to be competitions of guessing the weight of bulls at various fairs around England. You could buy a ticket, actually quite an expensive ticket, and if you were closest to the weight, uh, then you won the uh, prize. Francis Galton uh, thought it would be interesting, and he went down to one fair where there was something like 600 votes, um, and uh, said, why don't I take the average of all these uh, votes? Only one person is going to be closest, but if I take the average, maybe I'll uh, do uh, quite well. And it turned out the average was within about 1%. And he was very excited by this, and there have been books written about it. Uh, James Zukowski, I actually brought a copy, but better to show it here. Um, the Wisdom of Crowds. Uh, the many, you take the average, is uh, uh, smarter than the few. And Malcolm Gladwell says on the book, Dazzling, the most brilliant book on business society and everyday life that I've read in years. My conclusion is he hasn't read many books in the last uh, few years. Because while crowds are sometimes knowledgeable, they're frequently totally off uh, key. How many people predicted the uh, crash that uh, happened in uh, 2008? You know that wonderful film, Margin Call, where uh, you uh, see Jeremy Irons come in at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning by helicopter on this huge uh, New York building site, and he comes down, and they have a committee meeting, and he says to the PhD, the ex, well, the PhD from uh, MIT, I think it was, MIT or Harvard, they're not much different. Um, uh, now, look, I get paid 95, I think it was, 95 million pounds to support this company, Lehman Brothers, and keep it up. You're a PhD, and you think there's a problem, so explain 
to me the problem as if to a six-year-old. I probably still won't be able to understand, but try. You know, nobody knew that there would be this financial... Uh, the other film, <laughs> whose name I've just forgotten, um, Short Call or something like that. Uh, sorry? The Big Short, correct. Thank you very much. It's good to involve the audience, I've always believed. Uh, the Big uh, Short, um, where only three or four people knew that there would be this financial crash. If you took the average, you'd find uh, that it was hopeless. A slide that I uh, like is a plot of the estimated number of deaths by asking people against the actual number of uh, deaths uh, in the US. If people were right, then the results would follow that uh, red line. But you see, they underestimate the common form of death, and I'm a little nervous, there's a super-duper medical professor in the front here, and she will, her guess is along the red line, but everybody else's is, as you see, they underestimate the chance of heart attack and stroke and uh, the things that often kill you. And by two orders of magnitude. But they overestimate the chance of being hit on the head by a falling telegraph pole, falling down a man, sorry, a person hole, um, and the highly unusual things. The only thing that which I sometimes point out is they're pretty accurate as far as pregnancy is concerned. They know how dangerous a pregnancy is, but that's a complete flip. They more or less know what the line is, but its actual value they uh, don't know. Now, I might say I once showed this at a government uh, meeting, and a number of the people said, gee, could I please have that uh, slide? And I've been told now it's been shown so often that if I had a penny for every time it was shown, I'd be a millionaire. If I had even a penny for every time it's been shown and my name hasn't been mentioned and I haven't been acknowledged, I'd still be fairly wealthy, not a millionaire, that's uh, for sure. But I think that it shows that you need something different. Well, I will tell you about uh, what are the uh, ways that you might uh, do that have been used. We could do simple averaging, the uh, wisdom of crowds. We could get a committee together. But I think, as we all know, committees tend to be ran by the chairman, who may not know a lot, and by, I hate to say it, but it's true, dominant males who stamp the table and say, I know the correct answer. And we'll talk about that a little uh, later. Um, we can have a conference somehow and make a decision while talking about it a lot. We can use what's known as the Delphi uh, method. Um, the Delphi uh, method uh, was basically developed by Rand in 1946, where you get a facilitator and some experts, and they all say what they think, either by email nowadays, but not in 46, of course, they have to be together. Uh, but somehow or other, you get their uh, views. The facilitator reads through the views, decides on how to represent it, and then you're asked to vote again, so there's an iteration. Um, and uh, that sometimes works, but not uh, always. 
Now, I'm going to tell you of a different method, and I think a much better method and one that uh, we've used. And rather telling you the details of the method, which I will uh, uh, tell you uh, in... A, uh, sorry, I wanted to show the Delphi method. Well, I, I've said that already. Experts answer questions, the facilitator uses the summaries, they get together again, they come to the correct answer, and sometimes, or often, I don't know what those words mean, uh, it uh, works. But Roger Cook, uh, actually a classicist, has developed a new method about 25 years ago. Uh, Willie Aspinall, who is a geologist and also uh, a very good uh, uh, consultant, has uh, furthered it and written papers about it with uh, me, uh, and uh, I'm just the junior author here, uh, and I'm going to tell you about the Cook method. Before I tell you about the Cook method, I'd like to illustrate it um, by a little story. And I think the story makes it uh, more clear what I'm talking about. And the story is that uh, about three weeks ago, uh, a secretary in the department who I uh, like and who I get on well with came into my office really excited and said, um, I hear you giving a talk in uh, Sydney University. That'll be terrific. How many people do you think will come? And I, because I was working on something else, solving partial differential equations or something, which I won't tell you about, uh, said, oh, about 3,000. And she looked at me, and she had about the same view that uh, Judy had, 3,000? I said, well, 3,000 plus or minus 3,000. <laughs> and she said, well, look, that's correct, but it's not very accurate, it's not very useful. I said, okay, 500 plus or minus 500. And she said, that's also correct and slightly better, but I don't think you're going to get 500. Uh, but it's true that plus or minus 500, you will get 500. Now, tell me seriously, how many people do you think you'll get? And I thought about this for a bit, and I, by now I was concentrating on her, and I said, oh, 110 plus or minus 20. She said, okay, and she went away, and then apparently she thought about it a little bit, and... She thought, you know, I'm going to ask the head of department. I don't trust her, but he hasn't been to Sydney University since he was an undergraduate 60 years ago. What does he know? The head of department is uh, better. I'll ask the head of the department. The head of the department said, mm, Herbert, well, you know, I'm not so keen on him. Uh, 80 plus or minus 30. Okay, so uh, then she thought, well, but, you know, this is my head of department. I'm at the University of New South Wales at the moment. Uh, head of department was uh, also at New South Wales. Let's ask somebody in Sydney. I have a friend who's a head of department in Sydney, in fact, a dean in Sydney. I'll ask him. So uh, she asked him, and he said, oh, well, I would say, you know, these are very popular. The Sydney ideas are terrific. I'd say 120, plus or minus 10. And she thought about that, and she went home uh, that night, and as she was uh, lying in bed next to her boyfriend, he said, you seem to be distracted. What's... And she said, I'm thinking of Herbert and thinking about uh, his talk. Boyfriend apparently complained. Uh, she explained uh, what uh, she was thinking about. And then she said, oh, well, tell me, what's your view? And he said, oh, about 82 plus or minus uh, 15. And then he apparently fell asleep. Uh, she was a bit disappointed. I don't know why. But, uh, and she thought a bit more about it and she said, you know, this is ridiculous. I have these four figures, 110, 80, 120, 82. What am I going to do with them? I know. I'll weight them according to how reliable I think they might be. 
hope it's not very reliable. I'll uh, give him a, a rather small uh, weight. Um, the head of department, well, I'll give him a little bigger weight, and I'm sorry, I seem to have forgotten to write, write down here the weight that she gave. It's a pity I have it over there. Um, you'll have to believe me. The Sydney Dean, well, I'll give him an even bigger weight. Uh, I think the Sydney Dean got a weight of, one, of two. Uh, I got a weight of one. The head of department got a, in New South Wales got 1.5. Sydney was two. And she said, you know, my boyfriend, I love him. And I trust him. He's not academic. He hasn't been, but I trust him. His, I'm going to give him a, a weight of three. So she gave him a weight of three and added up the numbers. So she knew each uh, one of us. And uh, what she found out of that is that there'd be 98 people who would uh, come. Now, Meredith, where's Meredith? How many people are registered? She's a clever cookie. Sorry, Meredith as well as uh, my uh, uh, secretary. But the important thing that she had done, she didn't believe in taking the average. That would have not been good. She decided to weight each one of us. She gave more weight to her boyfriend than to me, and she was right, he was closer. Um, but my tally counted a little bit. And that's really the idea of the uh, Cook Method. Get a group of experts together. You can't know them like uh, uh, this woman uh, knew all of us. So instead, you set them an exam. You basically see how good they are at making predictions. Now, the exam has to have answers that are known, like uh, any exam. There's no point in setting an exam where nobody knows the answer. Uh, but you tell the people, you mustn't look into uh, Google or the web. We want to know from your head what you would uh, say. And that's really what the uh, um, method works. You get each of the quotes experts, and we'll talk about how expert they are and what weights they have later, um, asking them questions such as when do you expect this, uh, sorry, when did uh, the last uh, volcano or Vesuvius erupt, how much uh, uh, melt did it uh, put out, things like that. You want to know the mode, the most likely value, and the minimum value and the maximum value. Not plus or minus 10, that's a simple thing, but you might think it's skewed a little bit, and you might uh, say, well, the eruption, I think, will put out a million uh, tons of material Definitely more than 800,000, but I couldn't say for sure it's less than 2 million. And so you give a minimum, a mode, and a maximum. Then you assign weights to individuals. Instead of the uh, woman lying in bed and thinking, well, I don't trust her, but I do trust my boyfriend, you mark this exam and you get it done uh, properly, and you assign weights. And I'll show you an example of that in a moment. Um, then you get the best weighted solution. So everybody can contribute with a different weight uh, and you get the best uh, solution. And what I'll show you is that that is better than having equal weights, which is basically believing in uh, crowds. Now, I'm going to make it possible for you to actually do such an exam question yourself or a series of questions. And Meredith has arranged uh, for you to be told the web address now, it's a little difficult setting up the questions, or that's my excuse because I haven't fully done it yet, but I'll do it uh, tomorrow. The difficulty is 
when you get a group of experts together, they're experts in volcanology or in dam failures or in uh, share prices, and you ask them questions about dam failure, share prices, volcanology. There's no point in asking a volcanologist about biology. He or she doesn't have any idea. Um, now, you are very broadly uh, distributed. You have lots of different interests. What do I do? What I've decided is to ask questions about Australia. Almost everybody in the room is uh, an Australian. And here are some of the questions. Um, what was the population of England from which Australia originated in 1788? I have an argument with Robin, and I've taken this second question out of the actual uh, uh, questionnaire, what was the population of Australia at the same time? How many deaths were there in the first uh, uh, fleet? What was the shortest uh, reign of an Australian uh, Prime Minister? What's the volume of uh, Sydney uh, Harbour? Questions like that that you should have some feel for, and you can put in, as will be indicated uh, by Meredith, of uh, how... Uh, what your answers are, and then I'll let you know and I'll, I'll score you all. Well, the sort of questions that we've done recently, and I'll show you a series of questions, has been the uh, Montserrat uh, uh, volcano eruption, which happened in July 1995. There were very many uh, super-duper homes, because Montserrat is a wonderful uh, place, super-duper homes of people who thought they were totally safe. Uh, there was a report on the governor's uh, desk which said it wasn't safe at all and that Montserrat eruption was likely to happen within the next uh, 10 years. Uh, he took no notice of it uh, whatsoever. Uh, the eruption occurred. The insurance... Uh, and these houses, these super-duper houses, were built on the remains of old eruptions. So it was quite clear that it was going to happen. Uh, the insurance companies, sometimes people don't know, the uh, job of an insurance company is not to pay out it's to find as many excuses as they can to not pay out. And they said, oh, this is an act of God, and I'm afraid insurance isn't uh, payable under the act of God. And so all the people who had multi-million dollar houses lost multi-million dollars. Some of them, no doubt, could afford it, but uh, many may not have. There were also uh, a lot of uh, Montserratians who uh, lived here who were very badly affected. Their livelihood was affected. And just as an aside, I'll say the first time I uh, heard about this from Jeff Wodge, who wrote the report uh, that uh, languished on the governor's uh, desk, I said to uh, Jeff in the question period, was there much looting? And he looked at me as though I was rather strange and said, looting? These Montserratians are all related to each other. It would be like stealing from your brother. And somebody at the back said, yeah, I like to do that. <laughs> Anyhow, this is uh, an example. We've got a whole series of experts, some 23 experts. Uh, there are too many numbers here, but I wanted to put the whole thing in. Uh, 23 uh, experts, and we calibrated by asking questions about volcanic eruptions. And what you uh, see in the last uh, column is that Although each one of them gets a weight, which is in the penultimate uh, column, in the last column, the four most important people are uh, mentioned. The best one, 0.326. The uh, next best one is 0 0.198, uh, 0 0.101, 0 0.073. And the other people contribute, but rather little. An important aspect of this is that the result is kept totally secret. 
You don't know who these people are. So let me give you an example of where that is an important aspect. Uh, the military have to make a decision. How many guns to put on the new uh, battleship? How many men it would uh, take uh, to uh, overthrow uh, a certain regime? The generals, who've been there for a long, long time, but think of what happened 20, 30 years ago, may not be anywhere near as good as the younger people who are more up to date. If you set them uh, such questions, you might find that the weights of the younger people exceed the weights of the older people. If the older people knew about it, that would cause uh, terrible trouble. But by this scheme, you don't tell them. You just get them all to put in their suggestion and then you put the weights in, you get uh, what I believe and I'll show you is a good uh, solution without annoying those people who think they uh, are correct. And I find it fascinating that every time I've been involved in one of these, almost always the highest weight has been obtained by some woman who uh, is sitting in the back and is very quiet but is extremely knowledgeable. If she sat around a table, she'd allow the men to dominate and say what would happen. She's not a, in each case, it's been somebody who's not very dominant, but is very knowledgeable. And that's uh, much better. Now, I don't know who any of these people are, but I can't help telling you that I have a geological colleague, Stephen Sparks, with whom I got into geology and the mathematics of geology and the fluid mechanics of geology. Um, he's an extremely knowledgeable guy, the most uh, cited volcanologist, volcanologist in the world, fabulous field uh, um, geologist, lovely guy, no ego. And I just mention that when I point out the point 0.326, but I don't know uh, whether he's uh, that. Here's a photograph of him uh, and some chump next to him, but this is Steve Sparks, really a, a wonderful uh, guy. Well, just to make it clearer and uh, why I showed you that table, this is now a study, having got the weights, of what is the probability that the Frere Hills volcano, the volcano on uh, um, Montserrat, will have a magmatic eruption in 10 years. And here the experts, all of these people are very well known, meant to be great uh, geologists, volcanologists, and you see that they vary enormously. And what you also see if you look uh, at, uh, well, if you look at uh, the man who I believe is, no, I didn't say that, the man who's most weighted of all, you see he has a rather small range equivalent to or correlated with having some good idea and a rather small chance, he says, or she says, uh, of an eruption. Now what you find is if you take the wisdom of crowds, you get a 44% chance that there will be an eruption. On the other hand, if you score them and let the experts have a, the real experts have a say, you see it's something like 16%. Quite a different value and quite an important value. Now, this idea has been used in many, many uh, different uh, situations in volcanology, eruption risks, in uh, space questions, in, in industry, in groundwater, seismology, climate change, lots of uh, different uh, situations. Um, and I want to just tell you about some of those and some of the aspects that I find interesting. This is just a photograph of the first, oh, and it's called expert elicitation. Cook is very bright. 
but nomenclature is not his strong point. He calls it expert elicitation, which I don't think is the right term to use, and he calls it the classical method because he's a classicist. But that's a pity. It would have been much better. Anyhow, this is a photograph of the first time, and this is a bumper sticker. And it's important. Uh, an expert is somebody who knows enough to be scared. But expert elicitation is a calibration, it's a measure of ability to judge, evaluation, just as exams at Sydney University evaluate those people who are good and get first, and those people are lousy and get um, whatever the lowest rank is in Sydney these days. Well, in my day it was high distinction. Do they still do that? High distinction and credits? Incredible. I, I uh, once wrote to an American professor when I was an undergraduate here saying, I wonder if you'd hire me to do a uh, PhD uh, in your organisation. I uh, really am reasonably bright. I've got an H, uh, two HDs, one D and one C. And he wrote back and said, that doesn't sound very good marks to me. <laughs> um, it's not, not a measure of knowledge or intelligence or beauty or scholarship. Uh, the whole idea is to quantify the uncertainty, not to remove it. You can't change uh, the chance of a volcanic uh, eruption. Here are some of the typical questions that we asked uh, some uh, computer uh, people who were uh, involved in hacking of a computer uh, section of a um, big uh, uh, company. I could say, and I say it rather softly, because I was here two, three months ago, uh, some of the Australian government people could have uh, listened to what was going on here. We could have tested them uh, with the uh, census. I heard one guy who uh, reported directly to Malcolm Turnbull saying, it was incredible. We found out that people hacked into the system who just hacked in in order to have practice. They haven't sold the data or anything. They just wanted to hack in. Any 15-year-old boy knows that. Uh, how the people in charge didn't know that, I don't uh, know. But so these are the questions, and then you get to see who the real experts are. And that guy would have got a zero weight. Um, well, here are all the questions that were asked. How long does it take to get in? I don't want to go into details here. I don't know why I put that uh, in. This is a slide that I love, and I think it's very important. This is the adjusted weight, in other words, how good they are. And you see there are a whole series of people. Uh, uh, these were volcanologists. I deal mainly with volcanology, but the technique works uh, greatly. And also next to them is their score as far as reputation is concerned. You see number one is uh, right up at the top. I think of C. Sparks again, but I don't know who number one is. Number two, on the other hand, you see is not at all high. Number three is quite high, but number four and, and, and so on. Well, no, no, number three is quite low. There seem to be two number threes. Oh, I can't see probably, but you can see better than I. Number three is uh, quite low. So what it means is, the, and we find this so often, the person who is meant to be the expert often isn't. When you ask them questions... They can't do well. They can do well in thumping the table and saying, I say you should do this. Let's get 25 super professors. But when it really comes down to it, they're not uh, that good. Let me tell you a little story which illustrates it, and I find it very interesting. As uh, uh, Robin said and I've said, I've worked with Steve Sparks, and uh, together we developed this field of geological fluid mechanics. I could contribute the fluid mechanics. I could contribute the mathematics. 
I knew nothing about rocks. I knew nothing about field geology. I never really got to grips with that. Once I was taking uh, my two sons for a walk up in Snowdon, and at about uh, 2,000 feet or so later in the afternoon, couldn't have been 2,000, at one stage, later, early in the afternoon, rather, sorry, uh, we thought we'd take a rest and we'd sleep a little bit. Uh, so I was dozing and I heard a voice that I recognised. I thought, who is that? I, I couldn't quite pin it down, but I knew that I recognised it. So I got up and walked around some rocks and my two sons came uh, with me and there was a uh, professor of geology who I knew with his class of about 20 people from Manchester, actually, and uh, showing them around. And as I came into view, he said, my God, that's Herbert Huppert. That's the man who described those rocks that I showed you a 1,000 feet uh, below. He knows all about it. You're so lucky to meet him. Okay. Uh, when it was all over and they went away, the boys said to me, what rocks? Why didn't you show us as we uh, came up? And I said, having the slightest idea what he's talking about. I wouldn't recognise the rocks. I can tell you what the fluid mechanics is and how the mixing took place, how the eruption took place and what the pressure differences were, but the rocks? One is exactly the same. The same here. So, uh, you know, the expert may not know about the details that uh, you uh, want. Um, an example uh, from a long time ago was uh, looking at uh, dam failure. Uh, they got a group of experts together, look at the number of experts, in 1917. Uh, and they no doubt took uh, an average and they weren't uh, very good. But it's important to know when a dam might uh, fail. This is another graph which I uh, like uh, very much. This is getting a group of people together, and we've done this uh, um, frequently, from different backgrounds, overseas consultants, uh, academics, etc., and asking them, the committee members, to order the committee. Who do they think is best, and who's second best, and third best, and fourth best? And each person has a list, and then you merge the list, and uh, so you have the average uh, evaluation. And what you find is the mutual self-evaluation, which is on the left-hand uh, side, and what we find by giving them exams and how good they are is really quite different. That the UK consultant who everybody thought was the best was actually not that good. They had no idea what the rocks looked like, but at least I knew that I didn't know what a rock looks like. Um, this is a similar study uh, but a, a different uh, study, uh, and you see the rankings and the performance weights are quite uh, different. Well, let me give you two uh, more uh, examples. The first is sea level change. You can't argue with this. This is data, I'm afraid, and there's something like three millimetres uh, a year uh, of increase in uh, sea level, and it's been linear for the last uh, 30 years or so. This happens mainly due to thermal expansion of the ocean. As it gets hotter, the water, which is on average four kilometers deep, uh, expands uh, a little bit, and that makes 2.8 millimeters a year. Then there's some melting of the glaciers and the ice uh, caps. Then the Antarctic ice sheet and the Greenland uh, ice sheet contribute a little bit. But mainly, it's thermal expansion, and that's why we're worried if the temperature goes up. Um, but there's also the effect of uh, melting of uh, 
the West uh, Antarctic ice uh, shelf, uh, or sheets rather, sorry, uh, and uh, everywhere around uh, the world. This is what the Antarctic uh, looks like. You can see the uh, icebergs uh, in uh, the uh, distance there. This is now a close-up. These are big things and they can melt. Now, if you think that I'm showing you these as a sort of holiday snaps, you're totally correct. Uh, these are photographs I took two, three years ago when I went down to the Antarctic, which I thought was just wonderful. I enjoyed it uh, enormously uh, there. Anyhow, what are we going to do about that? Well, uh, complete melting would rise the sea level by 65 metres. That would inundate a lot of Sydney, a lot, all of Melbourne, well, that may be good. Um, quite a bit of Cambridge and a lot of other places, all of Bangladesh. Um, the IPCC got a group together and they said that by 2100, they think it will go up 12.4 plus or minus 4 centimetres. That's the big worldwide organisation. Uh, we approached some 26 experts, in, uh, who we thought were experts, in 2010 and 2012. About 14 of them agreed to take uh, part. Whether they were better or worse than average, or, I have no idea. 14 just said they'd take part. And uh, we tested them twice, 2010 and 2012, and you see there's almost no uh, change. The mean you uh, see is in millimetres a year, still about uh, five, but it's a skewed distribution. As I indicated uh, before, you might feel that you know the minimum quite well, but the maximum you don't know uh, so well. So what we have is before the complete melting, uh, 65 metres, 26 uh, experiments came by, came, uh, experts came by, and by testing them and uh, weighting them, uh, we found that 29 centimetres was the most likely, according to them, uh, rise by 2100, uh, and somewhere between 10 and 84. That's to be compared with 12.4 plus or minus 4. Well, that's quite a difference, which is correct. And if Meredith is going to be kind to me, She'll invite me in 2100 to come and lecture to you again, and we'll talk about how accurate that will uh, be. But in 2100, I should tell you, Meredith, I'm going to charge a fee for coming along uh, by uh, then. Up to 200 million people will be affected, and a different number, whether it's 29 centimetres or 12.4 uh, centimetres. I, this is a detail that I have before uh, the many different uh, uh, topics that uh, we've uh, done this on. I don't know why I had this twice. This is now coming back to uh, Montserrat. Um, and here are, you see a, a photograph on the top right, three people. Steve Sparks, the one in the white uh, jumper, who's listening and no doubt thinking carefully. Uh, Voigt, Barry Voigt, uh, the one in the white hair. He's the brother of John Voigt, the famous... Uh, yeah, even... Yeah, he, he took a better path. Uh, and uh, uh, the uncle of Angela Jolie and uh, another man. And uh, Barry is saying, whatever they're talking about, it's like this. And the other guy is saying, no, it's like this. What are they talking about? 
I'll let you use your imagination, but whatever, they're not in agreement. Um, and as I've uh, said here, in almost all circumstances, all times, we find ourselves in a state of uncertainty, but we have to make uh, decisions. Uh, I'll resist from making a political comment now. Um, now, the law could definitely use some of these uh, ideas. I can't speak for Australia and don't want to, but uh, British uh, 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 justice often doesn't like experts, people who know what they're talking about. They want to have just uh, rough estimates. They don't like what's called Bayes' theorem. Now, most statisticians will think that Bayes' theorem is fantastic. And what basically Bayes' theorem says is you change your understanding as understanding develops and you change the probability. And this is the famous Bayes' uh, formula that the probability of A given B is the probability of B given A times the probability... Oh, oh, sorry, I promise no mathematics. Forget that slide. But there is a way uh, of doing things. And the best example that I know of, but I bet there are others and even better ones, well, you may recall about 15 years ago, there was a woman, two of whose children had died due to cot death. And the lawyer argued there was one in a million chance, or something like that, but one in a million chance of a cot death, uh, this woman had had two such children killed, so it were, sorry, two such children die, so it was one in a million times, one in a million, that's one in a hundred, uh, sorry, a thousand billion, uh, couldn't happen. The only consequence or the only conclusion is that she'd killed them herself. Totally not a false, but she was convicted, and two or three years later, uh, statisticians got in and explained that it was garbage. And it was garbage because the first one in a million was irrelevant. She was there because she'd had a cot death amongst her uh, child. So that was immediately one in a million thrown out. Secondly, it was then shown by medics who knew what they were talking about that the chance of one cot death was genetic and said something about the likelihood of the second cot death. So the probability was rather small. Instead of being one in a thousand million, or no, a thousand billion, it was one in ten, which made an enormous difference. And I'm quite sure she was innocent. I mean, as every woman I'm sure, well, even some of the men in this room would know, women don't kill two of their children. That's just highly unlikely. And that idea of uh, statistics, on the other way, would be uh, to say, a mother and father have uh, died, uh, and a ma their son is in uh, court and saying, well, there's one in a million chance, even less, that a uh, man would uh, kill his mother and father. They just don't do that. So this man must be innocent. Well, that's ridiculous. Um, you're going to get, not in this form, in a slightly different form through uh, Meredith, these uh, questions such as what's the shortest reign of a uh, prime minister in Australia? You're meant to know about Australia. Uh, I know I've already given you example. What's the longest straight road in uh, Australia? What's the longest road with the same name in Australia? I'll ask you questions uh, like uh, that. And then I'll, it's totally anonymous, I won't know who uh, it is, but I'll score it and I'll give you back uh, the uh, score. Well, that's really all I want to say, except, what is the weight of this guy? <laughs> if you want to know, 
I'll tell you. Thank you very much. <laughs>
We're saying more weight to this guy who knows what he's doing, less weight this way. And the Americans are really always annoyed at that. They say, no, 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 we've got to have a democratic process and everybody has got to have their say. Well, I think that's uh, just uh, wrong. The democratic process, if I may say, in Britain led to Brexit. What a ridiculous decision. Uh, it's even ridiculous in that most of the people who voted for Brexit are going to be disadvantaged by it. And people like, well, all science is going to be terribly disadvantaged. And I don't think I'm giving away a secret. The uh, Vice Chancellor of the University of New South Wales has his eyes on British scientists because he knows they will come. Um, the plebiscite here, is that really the way to do it, to uh, ask the man in the street to make a decision? I don't think so. Interesting. What about various corporations, I wouldn't possibly mention the ABC, who spend zillions on consultants who come in, pronounce, take the money and run? That's... I'm, please excuse me for any consultant that's in the audience. That's the business of consultants, to take money and run. So they're doing sure. <laughs> what is right. It's good for them. Is it effective decision-making? No. I, uh, How do you know? Has, has anyone done a survey of that sort of thing? Well, I think there are lots of uh, anecdotal evidence that consultants uh, sometimes can make terrible errors, frequently. You know, and it depends what you get them for. Um, well, sometimes it's political. In other words, you well, want to back up the decision you want to make anyway... And you get all these smarty boots coming in and uh, they have the pie charts and whatever, <laughs> some of those numbers. Now, I'm genuinely interested. It is so much of a fashion these days to have expensive, well, especially I, in corporations where you can't afford the experts to come in. I agree totally. Um, can I slightly divert, but I think it's interesting... About 10, 15 years ago, I ran a course in Cambridge on entrepreneurial skills for scientists and engineers. And uh, we had a course, 16 lectures, I think, and then people who were entrepreneurs come in and talk to us. It was fascinating. But uh, during the course given by an extremely capable uh, character, he spent one uh, lecture talking about different accountancy methods. And there was method A, method B, and method C. And at the end of describing them extremely well, he said, now I'd like you to vote. Imagine you're the chief financial officer of a company. Which of these three methods would you use for your uh, CEO? And you know, a third voted A, a third voted B, a third voted C. And he said, you're all wrong. I thought, what the hell is he talking about? How can we all... He's just told us A, B and C. He's explained it to us. And now he's saying that we're all wrong. And he said, the method you use is the one that the CEO expects and is most used to. And I thought that was fascinating. I've learnt a lot from that. So the consultant, he knows that. He comes along and, just as you have said, gives the answer that's required, takes the money and runs. Where I think, you know, and again... I bet there are consultants who slam the table and say, as sure as hell, you should... Uh, well, I won't give examples, but you can all think of examples when they're wrong. Let me take you back to politics. Uh, do you happen to know anyone who's spent some useful time in Parliament? <coughs> 
this would is a that person have told you? <laughs> this is a trick question, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Let me explain, excuse me. The person I think I come to, or comes to mind is my son, who was the MP for Cambridge uh, for five years, a Lib Dem uh, MP. His biased father thinks he's fantastic. Let's go. Oh, and if you want to uh, see whether I get correct marks on that, uh, Robin very kindly uh, interviewed both me and Julian, uh, me on earthquakes, Julian on uh, Parliament, two weeks ago in the science show, skip the earthquake bits, it's not very good, <laughs> but he is terrific. Yes, yes he's, he's quite wonderful, and it's interesting <laughs> that being a, a Lib Dem, which is the party there, Liberal Democrat, uh, it coincided with a book by his former leader, Nick Clegg, who describes in the most wonderfully painful way how difficult it was to get any really useful decision made because he who was supposed to be Deputy Prime Minister under David Cameron uh, was doing all sorts of contortions. And so even though you can have a theory of effective decision-making... I wonder how many times in politics anyway, if your son told you, you can manage to do it. Well, how I would answer, and this is my answer, let me make it very clear, this is not Julian's answer, I'm not speaking for Julian, he has his own mind and his own views. But my answer is that uh, Clegg and Cameron got together in the garden of that day. Clegg was euphoric, uh, you know, the Lib Dems were going to be in uh, government, and he didn't even begin to think that Cameron was going to make it difficult for him. This was not a partnership uh, like uh, one has between a man and a woman where the man and women are going to go uh, together. This was something that was put onto uh, Cameron, the only thing he could do, and as soon as he could make it difficult for Clegg, he would, and he'd make it difficult all the time. So he very quickly said, hmm, that uh, uh, signature that you all put to uh, not raising uh, university tuition fees, well, I'll, of course, immediately raise you university tuition fees, and those people who are in the cabinet and the junior ministers, you're gonna have to uh, vote the way I want, and my own view, this is me, 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 uh, two people went through the eye lobby crying because they didn't think the vote was right. I think if they were crying, they shouldn't have voted I. I think if you want to uh, really get somewhere, you shouldn't uh, take on something that you don't believe in. And uh, that comes closer to home. <laughs> it might, but <laughs> tell me, I have a naive view that people at that higher level, especially when they're making decisions about the consequences, as you've just shown, of natural events, sea level rise, climate and all the rest of it, would like reasonably in a room when no one's watching and you don't have to be embarrassed to get the best information available. And it's not hard, you've got people around the corner because um, if you happen to be in the Parliament in Britain, in London. It's about a three-minute walk from the Royal Society of London, which used to be the Nazi embassy. Did you know? It's very interesting. Anyway, now it's uh, pure in all sorts of ways, and it's full of people who've got wonderful information, and you can put them in a room, and in a bipartisan way, because surely you're there for the public benefit, you can work out what's likely to be the consequence of something and make an effective decision. 
Well, I think you've raised a fascinating point, Robin. As always, you're always so uh, imaginative. And I think it comes back to the fact that status and knowledge are not uh, equivalent. There are fellows of the Royal Society, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, who know really very little uh, in actuality, just like I know nothing about So rocks. you wouldn't weight them? I'd weight them, absolutely. I can think, I'll really be uh, um, provocative now, I know some Nobel Prize winners in economics who know no economics whatsoever. I mean, you wouldn't want to ask them, now, the one I'm thinking of most, uh, I'm not going to say too closely, uh, uh, one is Nobel Prize for putting mathematics into economics, and he once <laughs> gave a talk in which he said, you know, I've for uh, a long, long time suggested to insurance companies that they uh, should uh, ask uh, people who want to insure their motor cars to say how many miles they're going to drive each year because the cost of the insurance should clearly be related to the number of miles. And he said, I'm so pleased they're now doing that. So afterwards I said, look, uh, boy, his name almost escaped. Uh, look, uh, insurance companies don't charge less. They ask you how many miles you're doing because if you say 5,000, you have a smash and they can prove that you did 7,000, they don't have to pay out. The aim of insurance companies, not to be fair, it's not to pay out. Well, he had no idea. And I, more, well, I thought, I didn't say. You have a Nobel Prize in economics, you don't know the first thing about real economics. So, Back uh, to I your closed to say, room. Sorry? Back to your closed room yeah. in Parliament with good advice given to people of goodwill, these are assumptions, does it work or does it not work? I think it could be done much better. I uh, think, I'll be arrogant now, uh, I could list the really knowledgeable FRSs, for example, who could give good advice and should be listened to, and I suppose I could get a list of FRSs who I wouldn't listen to if they told me the time of day. <laughs> yeah, I think the government would be much better off. Well, an example, again, that I thought was uh, fascinating, um, I've been on a number of government uh, committees, and we go and see the Home Office or whatever, especially the Home Office because it's in terrorism, and many of the people wouldn't turn up. There was... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can say this, but I will. There was uh, one time when I went to the Home Office, there were meant to be uh, 40 people from the Home Office there. There were 15 were on a table, and I feel this was my fault. The 15 were on one side of the table, and the three people were on the other side of the table. And so it was rather confrontational. And uh, at one stage, they explained something I, that I can't say about the London Underground, and... Uh, I said, look, you know, the people in the London Underground vary from weekday to weekend, from summer to winter. And this man said rather superciliously, um, oh, but everybody would do this, what they've been planning to do. Now, the three of us were all Australians. The three of us were all bearded Australians, which made a big problem. And we said in unison, no Australian would do that. <laughs> and he said, sure they would. I wouldn't. That was stupid. Stupid. Um, and I complained to the chief scientific advisor and said, you know, we come along, we give advice to the government, we don't get paid for it. What would be much better if there was some financial transfer, not to me, to the university or to a charity or something, and then the Home Office people, for example, but it's been the Foreign Office and others, 
would uh, take us more seriously. The CSA, uh, uh, David King, um, apparently put that forward, and so I got a uh, email from uh, the head of the home, well, I think it was the junior minister from the Home Office, saying, um, we've decided that we'd like you to answer questions by, I'm so embarrassed to say this, we've decided to uh, have you answer by questions by email, but we'll, which we want for free, uh, because they're trivial, uh, but when we have committee meetings, we'll pay you. <laughs> what was the conclusion? No more committee meetings. That's right. <laughs> they cheated us. I'm going to ask and, questions now yeah. of the audience, and I'm going to get up. But would you please explain why a geologist was chairing a committee on terrorism for the Royal Society? Because I was asked. <laughs> And obviously you don't have a scientist necessarily in the Royal Society who's an expert on terrorism. How can I answer that? <laughs> well, uh, I just wonder how it would... Was uh, it an effective should, process? Okay. Oh, 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 oh we were very effective. Um, uh, the real reason... <laughs> I don't know if Robin knows this when he asked the question is... Bob May at that stage, the wonderful Australian uh, scientist... From this university? Uh, from this university, youngest professor ever at this university. Bob May was at that stage the president of the Royal Society. And he said, gee, I think Herbert would do a good job. Let's get Herbert to be the chairman. So Herbert was the uh, chairman and we had some pretty uh, good people. What was fascinating, it comes back to your previous uh, question, uh, is some the members of the government said, well, we don't take these main conclusions, we don't think they're right. Some of the junior members said, this is fantastic, we're going to take this into account. And then about a year later, the whole government said, we should do this and this and this, and it's our idea. Of course, it's very similar to what was said in the Royal Society report, but it's our idea, we suggested. Uh, so, of course, and we were then told that the consequences of 7-7 were nowhere near as bad as they might be because of the things we'd suggested. Your son Julian said much the same thing. You put an idea out and people claim it as their own. Who would like to ask a question? Yes, over. Uh, because I listen to the ABC. Um, <clears throat> would you say the... The schools, a lot of these leaders you're talking about, they went to English public schools or, or boarding schools. Has that got anything to do with their unpreparedness in certain, to see that what's around the corner, like, like the Iraq war? I, look, I know people who went to English public schools who were fabulous and intelligent and sensitive, and I know people who went to uh, grammar schools who were drips. Um, I, I'm, Horses for courses, different schooling for different uh, people. Hi, um, I was just wondering, how do you avoid confirmation bias in the people that you ask to take part in the first place and the questions that you ask to calibrate them? And then if I can ask a second question, it'd be why don't you um, test the method with shorter term predictions like horse races or auctions? Uh, well, I think this is uh, important. I've only, no, we've only done this with scientists and science where no matter what you think, the outcome will be the outcome. The whole committee can say Montserrat's going to erupt tomorrow 
That doesn't change uh, the possibility. What people think about horse racing can change uh, the possibility. Um, and Philip Tetlock at uh, Pennsylvania has done uh, a lot on uh, political forecasting. Now, that's different from scientific forecasting for just that reason. Uh, if uh, the newspapers, well, as they did with Brexit, uh, say it's sure that uh, we're going to vote to leave, that influences people to uh, leave. And so that's different. And I wouldn't... Politics would be quite uh, a different matter. I don't know enough about using this technique. We've never really used it in a political situation. We've used it in a scientific situation. In which situations is that technique most successful? Yeah, they have been successful. As I say, there have been many more studies of things that are happening in the future which we can't yet uh, evaluate. And again, how do you... You know something from knowing there's a 10% rather than a 90% chance of something happening, but if it happens, or if it doesn't happen, <laughs> how, do you, you know, how do you judge that? It's difficult. Any more questions here? Yes. Uh, it seems your method's sensitive to the initial test that calibrates the ratings. Right, so somebody has to design the test. So I'm interested in who designs the test. And also, can the respondents say, I don't know, and how does that factor into their rating? They could say they don't know. And sometimes if you ask the question badly, uh, you will find that they'll pick you up on it, and that happened to us uh, recently. Um, I agree with you totally, it depends on how good the questions are. Um, I think Roger Cook and Willie Aspinall are very good at uh, getting questions and it seems to work, it seems to work uh, well. Um, I actually uh, set up some questions uh, a few years ago when I gave a somewhat similar talk at the University of New South Wales and they were too difficult, that was my uh, fault. But th that was a new experience for me, you know, we'd never done questions on Australia and I didn't know how much about Australia was known. And also, <laughs> I chose questions and it'll be true this time too, where I thought you'd be interested. You may not know the answer but you'd be interested to know What's the shortest reign of a PM? What's the, uh, uh, the volume of uh, Sydney Harbour? And I've asked you that question, not because I want to find the answer of five million cubic kilometres, which it isn't, um, but you might be interested in knowing um, what the volume is. I was quite fascinated when you asked the question of uh, what was the population of Australia in 1788, because the assumption of the Aboriginal population, was it... Tens well, of thousands? Was it a million? <laughs> well, uh, now... <laughs> of How course, would one find out? I, I, well, first of all, I got the, all these answers, of course, uh, from the web. And you could uh, just look up the web and get all the answers. Just like when you have a, a take-home exam, uh, you could just look up uh, the answers. But uh, in almost all American universities, I don't think it happens in Australia, but in all American universities, there are take-home exams and you're under honour not to cheat by looking up the internet or asking your girlfriend or anything like that. Um, it's the same with that. Uh, we assume that that they'll do uh, um, mm. properly. And well, I, I remember when you did ask that, I went around and asked some Aboriginal people because the answer mm. seemed to imply yeah. that some of the townships of Aboriginal people were far bigger than you ever imagined. 
And if you ask Aboriginal people, they said, yes, indeed, that was our tradition. Well, here I looked up the web and looked up what was the uh, um, Aboriginal uh, population in Australia and uh, uh, the time then, and that was the answer I got. If it was wrong, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I must say, it was much bigger than I ever imagined. Well, Who's next? Please. You um, mentioned the issue of a lot of experts and prominently in the media, et cetera, being often wrong. In your experience, either in your research or anecdotally, do you find there are certain behavioural traits that are characteristic of people who make reliable predictions versus not so reliable predictions? I think the... And this is a very general answer, remember, I'm not a psychologist. Um, I think the people who make the best predictions are those who are not over-enamoured uh, with themselves and not uh, think carefully. I mean, Steve Sparks, I don't know if I mentioned this, he has no ego whatsoever. It's remarkable. He, has a, you know, he, just, he does things... Another man I know, Ron Oxborough, who's the Lord Oxborough, he likes to have things happen in certain ways, but he doesn't mind if his name is attached to it or not. If a committee says, oh, what a good idea, let's do X, even though it was Ron's idea, that's uh, okay. So it's, I would say in general, people who are confident but not arrogant make better decision makings. And that's why I think it's these sort of young girls at the back, so to speak, who uh, do so well. They, they do as well they can, but they're not arrogant. And I can tell you Nobel Prize winners, as Rob and I were talking about it before, Nobel Prize winners who I wouldn't trust to cross the road uh, and who think they're terrific. And then I can tell you of others who, uh, Aaron Klug, for example, who knows an enormous amount, enormous amount, but he wouldn't trust it on you. He just, mm. just is reliable. What is concerning um, in your predictions for, let's say, the... Um, what's going to happen in Naples around Vesuvius and the other volcano is that even when you have a prediction and let's say you forecast it's going to happen five years from now, what is concerning is the people of Naples, they're probably not going to do anything about it and so it's all... So how do you really get that mass message through? How that's do you stop a, the, the geologists going to jail in Italy? Well, yeah. Well, that, that was a slightly different situation. But you ask a very good question. Um, how do you get people to take account? You know, as I said, uh, there was a report by Jeff Wodge which said Montserrat is going to go up. Uh, it had, I think, been even commissioned by the governor of Montserrat, but he did nothing with it. He just put it in the uh, drawer. Climate change, I'm nervous, I must say, but this is something about me, that we're not doing anything about it. Uh, it's interesting, we're not doing anything about it, I think, in part, now I'm becoming a psychologist again. One, I had this uh, wonderful discussion with uh, Marty Seligman, arguably the best psychologist in the world, who said, climate change or global warming was a bad term, it's too loose. When it was said, ozone hole, people then took more notice. Um, black hole. People take notice of that. The other terrible error, and I've said this a zillion times, is uh, the statement there's now something like a 0.75 degree uh, warming and we've got to keep it under two degrees. 
What does that mean? I mean, the temperature's changed by two degrees just while we've been in this room, so who the hell uh, cares? But it's the average temperature that's really very important, and two degrees makes a lot of difference. But it was a stupid uh, usage or stupid uh, value. We should have talked about the amount of carbon dioxide, 37 billion tonnes, uh, I've been working on carbon dioxide uh, storage for the last 10 years and I find it fascinating. Every time I give a talk, I have to alter the slide because the second or third slide says how much the carbon dioxide is put into, ma into the atmosphere by uh, human beings. And every time I give a talk, it's gone up. It's now 37 billion. It used to be 24. That's, you know, 37 billion to make a terrible hole is what should have been said. But you're quite right. How do you get people to do things? Are there any organisations that are, are using this regularly or taking it on board? I mean, how widespread yeah, I mean, is the uh, ideas going? Cook and Aspinall, and me by a little bit, but Cook and Aspinall much more regularly uh, do such consultations... 10 a year around the world, uh, 20 a year maybe around uh, the world using these techniques. I mean, I told you about uh, some of them. Uh, yeah, they are being used. And I think successfully. And of course, the other problem is if you use it to show that there's a problem and then you rectify the problem, then the problem may not occur. So you can't say, gee, <laughs> this was uh, really terrific. Um, thank you for coming. Your talk relies on an educated, selective elite. If you ask the wrong question, you'll get the wrong answer. How do you determine which question is the right question in whatever the circumstances is? And to provide a context, it always amuses me. When people say about climate change they want to restrict the temperature to a certain degree, for how long? Because, after all, over the slide you gave, and you mentioned it as a long period, was from 1900 to now. A hundred years in geological terms is next to nothing. So, over what period do we want to keep the temperature even? What degree of fluctuation would we permit as a, uh, will be regarded as a success? Well, let, let me say a, a few things to that. First of all, of course, as I've said before, asking the questions right is important and uh, with experience I think we're asking better and better questions. And I said, uh, I hope the questions will be interesting, but they, I can't be sure because I don't have an anywhere near enough experience of asking Australians. That hasn't happened uh, uh, before. Australians aren't at risk. Um, one thing that I think is very important, uh, people say when we talk about climate change, oh, look, the uh, Earth has uh, been warmer in the past and why are people getting so excited? The Earth is four and a half billion years old. I guarantee you, and if you like, we'll take a bet and we'll uh, settle it, it'll live for another 13 billion years. And at the end of 13 billion years, let's get together and uh, have a payout. Um, it's mankind who's in problem. The Earth doesn't give a damn. Here I'm a geologist. The Earth doesn't give a damn if Bangladesh is uh, flooded, if uh, Melbourne is flooded. So what? Uh, but for us, it'll be a huge uh, problem. There's no doubt that uh, since the Industrial Revolution, 
the global temperature has gone up. We've had more extremes, which is consistent with what we uh, believe. Hotter days, uh, it was the hottest September ever on record, both, well, in, in uh, Australia. Um, and uh, coming back to my son, he has a wonderful, on, he showed on Facebook the other day, a uh, um, uh, plot of temperature against time of the year for different years. And you can see, of course, it's like this, it's hottest in the summer, but gradually it's getting hotter and hotter. Now, that, I, that's data, there's no doubt it is getting hotter. There's the question of whether mankind is uh, causing that. I believe uh, it is, and you see that by the amount of carbon dioxide, because we know how much carbon dioxide there was in the atmosphere. And we know over the last uh, two, three billion years that there had been an incredibly tight correlation between carbon dioxide and temperature. And we know that uh, if we go to the other planets, uh, if you calculate how hot they should be without carbon dioxide, you get completely the wrong uh, answer. And in fact, this in some sense uh, started with Tyndall, who uh, calculated uh, what the uh, temperature of the Earth should be, theoretically, good theoretician, got minus 20 degrees. Now, he knew that wasn't right, so he said something must be wrong. And then he had the idea, he knew about greenhouses, and he said, let's uh, think about whether some of uh, the components of the atmosphere act like a greenhouse, um, because we do know a greenhouse gets very hot. So he did some experiments, because he had to work out the uh, uh, absorption coefficients on uh, oxygen, obviously, on uh, nitrogen, neither of those uh, was anything uh, worthwhile and he was about to uh, give up the study and then he thought well there's a little bit of carbon dioxide and water vapor in the air maybe I should try it on that and methane and he was shocked that he got really high uh, values. That was 200 years ago wasn't it? Sorry? That was 200 years ago. I don't think quite, I think that was 1880 it seems like 200 years ago. <laughs> yeah um, but uh, so Tyndall knew that there was this uh, problem yeah. Well, as a last question, may I ask you one that, that's always puzzled me? Uh, the last question I was asking about the, uh, the informed nature of the person who's going to be making the decision. Now, when it comes to presidents or even prime ministers, you can often have the ones who are extremely intelligent, like Malcolm, uh, like Jimmy Carter, Obama for that matter, who seem to dither because they're looking at the contingencies all the time, and there's always a, a good reason to hesitate and find out more. So would it be better to have someone like George W. Bush, who's not distracted by intelligence or information, <laughs> who can then go and say, we invade? OK, we'll make that the last question. Should we have George W. Bush as president of... Oh, sorry, Prime Minister of Australia? Well, I'll tell you, I'll give a... What I think is a fascinating little story is an answer. Um, John Howard, about six months after he was uh, deposed, came to uh, Cambridge because the head of uh, one of the colleges in Cambridge was the head of MI6, and he knew uh, Howard well. And this uh, man, whose name, of course, just escapes me, um, would in would have dinners and a number of times when important Australians came and he invited uh, me and by some error I came half an hour early and I said, uh, 
Anyhow, I said to Richard, uh, Richard, look, I'm terribly uh, sorry I'll go away. He said, no, 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 look, Howard's already ready for the dinner. Why don't you come and talk to him? And I thought, gee, that would be wonderful. So uh, we uh, talked, and after about 10 minutes, I uh, said to him, what do you most enjoy uh, doing now that you're retired? And he said, talking to students. I find that youngsters have the most interesting things to say. And I thinking, what the hell? No cheek, no Christmas pudding. Uh, I said, you know, my uh, institute get together to have a, uh, a uh, morning coffee, because I knew he was only there for the next morning, on Tuesdays. Would you like to come and talk to some students? It would be wonderful to have you. And he said, yes. He said, I'd love to come. Now, the problem, and I don't repeat this, but I'll tell you, my students got together on Wednesdays, not on Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> Before I walked into the dinner, I rang up one of the professors and I said, you get those guys there <laughs> tomorrow <laughs> at uh, 10.30. Um, Howard came. He was wonderful. I enjoyed uh, talking to him uh, very much. And he spent about an hour and a half with the students. He was very good. And they asked questions that I would have thought of but a little embarrassed to ask, but they, they felt they could. And one of them said, how do you feel now about climate change? And I think I can say this, it was open. He said, it was the biggest mistake I ever made. I should have really supported climate change. And we all said, really, really, you believe in climate change? He said, no, it's a pile of rubbish. But I should have supported because then I would have been re-elected. <laughs> <laughs> now, Meredith, you have a form there for people to fill in. It's on your chair. And Herbert, you have... Um, an instruction about those questions at the bottom of the... There'll be an e email tomorrow. Uh, Meredith is sending out 98 emails tomorrow. <laughs> and you get in touch with Herbert if you uh, wait, if you want your waiting, is that right? Yeah. Uh, I'll uh, score them. That might take uh, time. Uh, <laughs> thanks to Robin, I'm going to Canberra uh, later this week. Um, I'll send uh, back uh, uh, waitings, uh, but I won't uh, know who you are, so you don't have to worry. I'm not going to say Judy got one and John got two. You're going to see Malcolm on Wednesday. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Robin. <laughs> and thank you, Herbert. <laughs> <laughs>